If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Well, Thanksgiving gets a lot of traditions, food, family, food, football, food, but not a lot of songs. And an exceptional exception to that is a song by Mary Chapin Carpenter, which if I may borrow from an upcoming seasonal song, may be a source of comfort and joy as well as pleasure in this very unusual year. Let's hear a bit of the Thanksgiving song. From far and near we travel home Blessed that we are able Mary Chapin Carpenter, welcome and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Gil. Thank you so much. What what brought you to write this song? Because as I said, people don't write songs for some reason, despite how much this means to get family and friends together and everything. People don't write songs about it. You know, I, I, I think that there are some songs out there besides mine. But what I would suggest, perhaps, is that maybe, you know, I'm, I'm thinking this through as I'm talking to you, but I'm thinking that maybe because Thanksgiving is so close to the, uh, the Christmas holidays, as it were, that, you know, all, all the attention is on that. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and that is traditionally, obviously, a time for a, a tremendous music and carols. And when I was writing songs for uh, what I think of as a holiday record, I wanted to write something that spoke to this sense of gratitude and appreciation for loved ones and family and gathering, all those words that we use when we talk about the Thanksgiving holiday. Well, it is a song about gratefulness. It's also a song about coming in from sorrow that we may need more than ever this year. Yeah, isn't that true? Um, this is going to be a Thanksgiving, uh, unlike any that I think we've ever experienced, certainly n nothing like we've ever imagined. Um, but there are, you know, obviously lots of articles and and interviews and ways that people who are helping each other navigate this very different uh, time of year. Um, and I think it's 
I think it's wise for all of us to to listen to those uh, experts, if you will, and and also just to remember that by being careful this year, we will have many years of happiness going forward. That's how I'm thinking of it. That's that's how I feel um, my way towards making the sacrifice to to stay safe. One of the things that you have tackled so well in the songs that you've written over the years, and several of them in the latest album, The Dirt and the Stars, is, you know, just the idea of that people go through sad things and people go through depression and people may say, oh, that sounds terrible. But actually, I think it brings happiness to people who are going through it. It's like, I'm not alone. Here's this very, very talented and successful person who has been going through some of the same things. And especially at this time, when a lot of people are alone. That's actually a good feeling. Well, there's nothing like being reminded that we are not alone in in our struggles, in our challenges, in our seasons of life that we go through. And I mean, for me, music has always been this thing that makes me feel connected uh, to the world um, and to people, obviously. And we have this saying uh, amongst my songwriter friends and I, we, you know, the sadder the song, the better. Um, that sad songs make us happy, um, you know, and it's not that we're, you know, gluttons for punishment, but rather, you know, there's just something about sad songs that you can, you can certainly recognize right away that sometimes you just want to put something on that makes you cry. And sometimes you want to put something on that makes you feel less alone. And, you know, so there's a, there's a, a method to the madness and there's a reason why we seek these things out. You have an event the day after Thanksgiving that really illustrates mm-hmm. where we are this year. You're going to be performing. It's a live stream at Wolf Trap. Normally seats 7,024 people. Obviously, I looked that up. But there will mm-hmm. be no audience. You're going to be performing solo, which you probably haven't done in ages. Tell me about this. Well, you know, Wolf Trap is this gorgeous, beautiful outdoor and indoor venue uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. It has been for a long, long time for for me, uh, sort of almost like my hometown gig, you know. I live just outside of D.C. and have for many years. And it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful space, beautiful stage. And it just, it, it I had been doing these, these little videos, if I can call them that, um, since really the beginning of March of this year when everything started to shut down. And I've been posting them online and I called them songs from home. And I would just say a few words to the, into the camera, into the cell phone camera. Uh, that's, that's my extent of technology here. And, um, I would play a song and now we're up to, gosh, we're almost, uh, into 50, 50 episodes. And, uh, it'd be sort of once a week, started out twice a week, but now it's once a week it sort of planted the seed for the idea of doing a full length concert. And you're right. I haven't played solo, you know, in a tour for years and years and years. And at first I was terrified at the idea of it. And then I thought, well, you know, this is just what I've been doing in my kitchen all these months. Why can't I just do it again on a stage? And thankfully Wolf Trap was so welcoming to the idea and yes, the idea of playing to a capacity of over 7,000 uh, seats, keep, you know, without people in them is daunting. But at the same time, 
I think this pandemic is showing us what we're made of, right? So um, right. it's something that I I view as not so much a challenge, but just a way to just affirm that we are all strong, we are all mighty, we can all make it through this, and I certainly can make it through a solo show. You mentioned uh, writing songs in your kitchen, performing in your kitchen. I should mention that the proceeds from this concert that people can live stream, and there's information about this in Mary Chapin Carpenter's website, as well as at Seated.com, will go to World Central Kitchen, which brings food to disaster sites where otherwise people might be, even people who survived the initial disaster might find themselves starving. You know, we wanted there to be some sort of component of, of uh, uh, giving, if you will, charity to this um, project. And so World Central Kitchen, they do such, Chef Jose, it just does amazing work. And they're, they're all over the world whenever uh, someone in the world needs them. And that seems to me to really embody the spirit of Thanksgiving. And part of Thanksgiving for you, I guess, is there's this concert and then home to the dog and cat that's right. Yes. Um, I'm here. I live, as I said, just outside of Washington, D.C. on a farm in sort of in the middle of nowhere. But it's it's beautiful spot and it's very serene. And and uh, I love in the days when I would tour in the before times, as we say, um, it was always uh, a place I couldn't wait to come back to. And um, I'm so grateful and lucky that I I get to be here during this time. And my dog and my cat are my pals, and they're keeping me company. And hopefully I'm keeping them company. And, uh, yeah, so I will be returning to the farm for Thanksgiving. Final question. When you put together a concert like this, when you've got the catalog that that you have over the years, uh, you've written – you know, a ton of songs, some of which, and I think every singer-songwriter goes through this, some of which that you may uh, still relate to, you know, some not so much. How do, you, how do you pick songs for something like this? Oh, gosh. You know, it's hard, Gil. It's really hard. Um, I was talking with my manager, and, and he, his advice was, you know, just make this a, a, you know, from A to Z of what, when you started making records to the most recent record. And so that's what I've been focusing on uh, when I've been working on the set list is just to start from the first record to the most recent. And you're right. I, I've got a few songs. And so there are a few that didn't make the cut, but hopefully there's going to be something for, you know, whoever tunes in, hopefully. <laughs> it's the day after Thanksgiving. It's, it's a live stream, but from what I understand, it will be available afterwards and that there's an album planned out of it. So if you're going yeah. to be out and away Thanksgiving weekend, you can catch up. Mary Chapin Carpenter, thank you so much for this time and for all the albums you've done, all the albums to come, Mm -hmm. and happy Thanksgiving. Gil, happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Thank you for talking with me. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Thanksgiving has never inspired as many songs as Christmas or most other holidays for that matter. Maybe we were just too busy traveling or eating to write those songs. But one of the few that broke through is only indirectly about the holiday, and it broke through in a very unlikely way. This song is called Alice's Restaurant. It's about Alice. 
and the restaurant. But Alice's Restaurant is not the name of the restaurant, that's just the name of the song. And that's why I called the song Alice's Restaurant. In 2017, it was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or artistically significant. Matthew Barton is curator for the Recorded Sound section of the Library of Congress. Matt, good to have you here. How are you doing? Nice to be here. This became a best-selling record against all odds. It was too long, nearly 20 minutes for most radio stations to play. It was an anti-Vietnam War song. Talking Blues wasn't a rock band, just a guy with a guitar. Arlo's father, Woody, was famous, but nobody had really heard of Arlo. He wasn't for, from England. The Beatles were still big at the time when it comes out. And the title of the song, of course, have almost nothing to do with the song. So let's unpack this one thing at a time. <laughs> for people who have never heard it, what was it about? Uh, well, just what you said. It's a 17, 18-minute eight, uh, song and, and story. Um, you know, starting in Thanksgiving of uh, 1965 when... Arlo and his friend found themselves with a whole lot of garbage on their hands and they couldn't, uh, the local dump in Stockbridge, Massachusetts was closed. And this led to uh, an arrest and a fine for, for, for littering. And, and uh, all of this came back to haunt him when uh, he was uh, uh, called in by the draft board and they <laughs> asked him if he had any record. You know, those are the, uh, I guess, the, the bare bones events of it. But the funny part of it, Matt, is is interesting because the record gets released in 67. It's a time of anger and protest over civil rights, the Vietnam War. Most of the songs of the time are very strong, whether it's Sergeant Barry Sadler's Ballad of the Green Berets on one side or Phil Oaks' The War is Over on the other. This, by comparison, is very gentle and very funny. Yeah, it, it, it certainly is. And I think that's, uh, you know, that, that may be the key, but also just... You know Arlo's amazing delivery of the whole thing, which he'd been working on for a while. The the uh, the, the whole piece, the performance was, you know, more than a year old at, at that time uh, that the record came out in the fall of '67. Um, and so, you know, I mean, he, he uh, you know, he's this uh, you know genial, uh, you know, funny guy telling you a story, and he just draws you into it. Uh, and it gets more and more absurd, uh, it just sort of escalates. But, you know, it, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, you're it's kind of you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. You know, you, you follow him all, all the way from this incident with the garbage through the uh, incident at the draft board and the Group W bench and, and all of that. Uh, and although the draft is mentioned, uh, Vietnam is not mentioned. I'm pretty sure that word is never heard in, in the whole performance. Right, which is interesting because when Arlo was asked about it being an anti-war song, he said that it wasn't anti-war. He believed there were just wars like World War II. It was just against the Vietnam War. So he said it wasn't an anti-war song. It was just an anti-stupidity song. And yet, uh, you're right. He goes in through the sideways of getting you to listen to this song that really just kinds of makes a joke about the whole process without, as you say, actually mentioning the war. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, I was a, a kid when it came out. I actually remember this. That's partly because I'm from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where folk music was was very big and, and Arlo Guthrie was actually known. I mean, my parents had the record. Other people's parents had the record. Um, I memorized parts of it. My friends memorized parts of it. You know, we just thought it was so funny, 
you know, the 27, 8 by 10 color glossy, glossy photographs with circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one explaining what each one was to be used as evidence against us. <laughs> you know, you, you could could rattle these things off. Um, and, and so I think it, it was just, you know, it, it's such a it, it's so funny. It's so clever. It, it stands the test of time. Just, it's amazing that, you know, something can be repeated like that and still be funny. Than it is today. Yeah, I mentioned the length. It's a little over 18 minutes. Arla never thought the song would even be released. Yeah, uh, the, the thing is, there is a bit of a backstory. It didn't just happen out of nowhere. He, uh, he'd he been performing the song on the, you know, the coffeehouse uh, circuit at that time. And he got booked into the Newport Folk Festival that summer. I think it was in July. Um, uh, just as a uh, songwriter and in a daytime workshop. And he did, you know, the entire Alice's Restaurant, you know, Massacre, and it went over great. And they, they put him, that, that I believe was on a Saturday afternoon, they put him on the evening concert that night just to do that. And then for the, um, the final concert the following night. So he did it, you know, three times in, in two days for very large audiences. And, uh, you know, so there was definitely a buzz on him. And it was, you know, the, the reaction at Newport that, that got him a record contract and, you know, they wanted to uh, strike while the iron was hot. The record was out within a couple of months. As a recording, which is what you're in charge of for the Library of Congress, it's it's very unique, not just in the length and all the things I mentioned earlier. It's a talking blues. It's a device, almost a speech that then goes back to a chorus that Arlo would have heard in many of his dad's songs, but is also kind of a comedy routine and and arlo talked about being influenced by the comedian lord buckley it's such a strange brew to become as popular as it did yes and no i i think um you, you have to remember you know he was also influenced by his father and if you you listen to the 1949 concert recording of, of woody that surfaced um a number of years ago um Woody gets on riffs like this, and he'll go on for for ten minutes on a variety of you know very loosely related subjects. But the audience is with him; they're following him the whole way because he's he's engaging, he's he's funny, he's clever, uh, he's he's insightful. He's telling them things they don't know, uh, and you know some some of that you know Woody got from Will Rogers. And from the fifties on, there was Lord Buckley, um, but you know there were also other comedians, you know, like Mort Saul, um, Bill Cosby, Brother Dave Gardner, uh, you know, who you know they weren't just telling jokes. You know, it wasn't a um, you know quick punchline kind of humor. Uh, or, or Gene Shepard is another one. They were storytellers, and you know they would draw you in, um, and and just you know, lead you down all these unexpected pathways. And, uh, you know, so I think, you know, Arlo was tapping into some of that, you know, in, in his own very distinctive way. And we say that he's talking, he is, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's a very musical kind of talk. And, you know, the fact that when he performs it, uh, performs Alice's Restaurant today, uh, even though there are some, he makes some changes here and there, he's doing it very much the way he did it in 1967. You know, so it, it's the the words sound a certain way. You know, there's there's a cadence, there's a there's a manner in which he's doing it that I think is is very musical. And he's playing the whole time, too. So the song becomes such a phenomenon that a hit movie, Alice's Restaurant, is 
made about it, directed by Arthur Penn, who had done Bonnie and Clyde in The Miracle Worker. And this had become such an event by this time that Officer Obie, who arrested Arlo for littering in real life and took those 27 color glossy photos to show to a judge who was, in fact, blind. Officer Obie ends up playing himself in the movie, as did the actual judge. I mean, rather than be offended, in the end, that this became such a phenomenon, they wanted to be a part of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... (laughs) That's a couple of pretty good sports right there. Uh, life, life imitates art. And final thing, Arlo, aside from having to live up to a legendary last name, uh, found humor, and that's his way into music and fame, even though he had a 50% possibility of a terrible degenerative disease hanging over him that his dad had, Huntington's chorea. It's an inherited disease that attacks the brain. And I remember talking to him when he turned 50, and I said, I guess the weight is off your shoulders now. And he took a long breath and said... Yeah, I guess. Uh, But there was this underlying thing that he rarely talked about um, that's always there. Part of the money that he makes goes to raise money for research into a disease that we still don't have a cure for or treatment for. And, And yet, again, he finds this way into this with this gentle sense of humor, which is, you know, very unique. Yeah, he's really a, a great musician on, on many levels. Uh, you know, you can see that, you know, you just look at the musicians that he, he played with, you know, top top of the line people. Uh, and at the same time, you know, there's, you know, there, there's, there's a great spirit that runs through all of it. You know, just a, a lover of life uh, is what you're hearing. And, um, you know, it, it's... Uh, you know, listening to Arlo Guthrie makes me happy. They'll walk right in his around the back. Just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. da 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 At Alice's Restaurant. Matthew Barton is a curator for the recorded sound <laughs> section in the Library of Congress. Matt, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Well, it's Thanksgiving, Charlie Brown. Well, over at Apple TV it is, which is being viewed in most homes about as often as Lucy sees the Great Pumpkin, which is to pretty much say almost never. To talk tech and good grief, Apple TV is Ayaz Akhtar, senior editor at CNET. Ayaz, a lot of people are miffed about the peanut specials being over at Apple. I mean, it has about 33 million subscribers, but that's mainly because of all the free trials, some of which are about to expire and um, a lot of people are saying, we, we, want, we want our peanut special. Yeah, when it comes to tradition, it's hard to mess with that. A lot of people are used to sitting down at a certain time, watching linear TV. We're all sitting at the same time. Everyone around the country is watching Charlie Brown, at least in their time zone, together. And with this new change with Apple getting a contract to get all the Charlie Brown content, including the new Snoopy show. They've got all of the, all of the holiday specials on Apple TV plus, which is their streaming service. And you can watch some of this stuff on demand. But the thing is, you're not going to be able to watch it at the exact same time, unless you set up a group watch or you're calling up your buddies saying, Hey, everybody eight o'clock Eastern time, fire up your Apple TV plus subscription, which I hope you have. And let's watch it. But then again, on a fair side to Apple, 
they have made the specials available free to stream for certain time windows for like the Thanksgiving special. It's available for free from the 25th to 27th. But outside of that, you need to have a subscription. In more than a year, while you know Hulu has had Handmaid's Tale and Netflix has had a number of hits, including recently The Queen's Gambit, Disney has The Mandalorian, Apple with all its money and star powers, still looking for that show that gets people talking and watching. Now, now they're talking about the Peanut specials, but not in a nice way. Yeah, I mean, it definitely gives the, gives Apple TV Plus a a big anchor because it's a property people know and love. But when it comes to all of their big name shows, they have so many big stars so many big names you've got jennifer aniston you've got steven spielberg involved you've got jason momoa you have a lot of big stars when it comes to this and apple has done a huge job trying to get apple tv plus on as many platforms as possible when will they reach a level of uh let's say something like stranger things that everyone knows and watches and binges together i'm not sure when that's going to happen as far as i know i don't believe apple tv plus does the bingeable model yet they do a weekly schedule which is is working for disney plus but perhaps they need some kind of big hit that people all watch together and go okay this thing is amazing it shows you what apple tv can do but that's a lot of programming and especially in today's climate it's very difficult to get a show done animation might be the way to go you know to, to wrap this up and getting back to the peanut specials when when they did the first one which was the christmas show the network which at that time was cbs said you know nice try everybody thought it was a failure they had untrained kids voices very basic animation the soundtrack a jazz pianist in the san francisco area that only a few people knew he had had one hit uh, cast your fate to the wind but other than that not a lot of people knew about Vince Guaraldi, and they thought it would never be shown again, much less become what it's become. And when we talk about all these other shows that cost millions and millions of dollars, it's just funny that this is the thing that people miss. For a while, like on every network at the same time, because the rights weren't exclusive, then I think NBC got the exclusive, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on that. And it's this, it's almost like this warming feel of this is what normal feels like when it comes to this with Charlie Brown in particular, you know, I, I didn't know how ill received it was until you mentioned that. But I do remember reading about the fact that these weren't like really great kids acting stars or anything. So it's, it's this ability to see something at the same time every year. And I think with the streaming services, we lose that a bit because since we're calling it on demand, it's not a familiar thing unless you make it a tradition. It's almost like having a family tradition versus a national one. Well, I'll tell you a final story about the, the peanut special. So when they first screened this, and it was CBS again at that time, uh, Lee Mendelson, the, the producer, watched and thought, this will never be shown again. The network people were going, yeah, this, this doesn't make it. And the only person in the room who had it right was a cartoonist who was dead drunk and said it'll run a hundred years and then slumped unconscious to the floor. And he was the only guy in the room who knew what he was talking about. Well, I mean, if that doesn't tell you how you should be when you're viewing content, I don't know what does. So when you're watching these shows, do as the cartoonist did, get dead drunk. No, this, that's not advice. Don't listen to that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, that's interesting to hear because the show, look, these, these things are really wholesome and they, they are very warming. They're enjoyable. They're simple stories. They're easy to understand. They're easy to connect with. We all remember what it's like to be a kid in these kinds of situations. The excitement of Christmas, the excitement of Thanksgiving, the excitement of Halloween, just all of these wistful things that even as adults, we sometimes go, oh, yeah, I remember the feeling of that. And we also remember watching it as children. So to find out it's it was so successful after such a 
bad start. That's that's also a nice warming story. It is. And a reminder, Apple is offering the Thanksgiving special free for a limited window, which for Thanksgiving, as Aya said, is November 25th through 27th. Aya Zaktar from CNET, thank you so much for being with us. And happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In another segment of this broadcast, we cover wines that go with Thanksgiving. But this holiday doesn't have to be all la-di-da, because let's face it, if you're going to spend part of the day watching football, the rare vintage of an oaky wine is going to be beaten by the reliable can of an okay beer. Which brings us to Greg Engert, the beverage director of the Neighborhood Restaurant Group in Washington, D.C. And, and Greg... Despite what I just said, fewer and fewer people are actually settling for an okay beer these days. Beer has opened up in the same way that that wine did 40, 50 years ago. Absolutely. I mean, craft beer has been on the ascent for a number of years now, and it shows no signs of slowing down. You find it everywhere from local tap rooms to grocery stores, high-end bottle shops. And I think it's because beer just offers so many different flavor possibilities which makes it great for every palate, but also for every plate you may bring out for your holiday feast. Yeah, and this was something of a shock. I remember, you know, after the 50s and 60s, when a lot of the local breweries went out of business as, you know, Budweiser and Miller kind of took over everything, this this little place, it's still there, called the Peculiar Pub, opened up in Greenwich Village about 30-something years ago. And it had this gigantic beer menu with, you know, all these tastes like cherry beer and things. And, and we had never seen anything like that before. Right. And the interesting thing about that is, of course, Peculiar Pub and some of the progenitors of the American craft beer bar movement were sourcing beers from all over the planet. But they also had the opportunity to source beers from some of these fledgling small American breweries that had started in the 70s and 80s. And a lot of those breweries came from, you know, uh, intrepid Americans, sometimes studying abroad or serving uh, overseas and tasting these incredible beers from Britain or Germany or Belgium or the Czech Republic and saying, wait, this is beer. We can, this, we can have this. And so when they would get back home, they would pull out their homebrew sets, which until I think 1979 was technically illegal and try to replicate those flavors. And so these great beer bars are starting to source beers, not just from these amazing brewers from overseas, but also from these young brewers, the likes of which we now know as Sierra Nevada and Anchor Brewing. Yeah, the rise of craft beers has been amazing to the point where the big breweries decided to buy up some of them, though they don't play that up any more than, you know, Lincoln advertises itself from the people who brought you the escort. But still, it's become that big a business, that major a segment of the American beer market. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how craft brewing has grown just over the last 40 years or so. You know, Back in the late 19th century, America actually had 4,000 different breweries. Um, but through the 20th century, uh, with consolidation and you know mass uh, production of, of macro beer, uh, the likes of which you've mentioned, Bud, Miller Coors, things like that, it went all the way down to about 80 breweries in 1980. And today, there are over 8,000 breweries in the U.S. So you can't go too far without running into an incredible small artisan craft brewery uh, producing, you know, of course, not just lager, but also uh, Belgian style ales, fruited sours, pastry stouts, hazy IPAs, 
uh, truly uh, innovating every single day. And it, it's just been uh, miraculous to see how beer has changed uh, over the last few years. So since this holiday is about tradition and about American history and all of that, how does beer get here? Well, beer, uh, it gets here from uh, the settlers that came over in the uh, you know, early 17th century, um, bringing with them ale, uh, obviously one of the best supplies that they had. And it's said that many of the settlers decided to stop where they did because they ran out of so many supplies, including uh, the beer that they had brought along for the journey. Uh, and when they got here, unfortunately, they ran into some rugged terrain and barley and hops were not as plentiful as they had been uh, back in the Netherlands or back in Britain. Uh, and so they you know, had to kind of make do with whatever they could find. Uh, and they did. They would import beer where they could, but then they started a a nascent kind of homegrown industry, uh, brewing from from barley when they could, but also utilizing any sugar source they could find. So whether that's molasses or squash or even, of course, pumpkin, they were able to figure it out and make sure that they had beer uh, as much as possible. Okay, let's talk about what we serve at a Thanksgiving feast or, or any feast, really. Do we do, you know, Anything like wine pairings, like, you know, this glass of beer goes with turkey, this glass, second glass goes with potatoes, third glass goes with pie, fourth glass goes with a DUI on the interstate. I mean, do, can we do beer <laughs> pairings? Absolutely. I mean, this has been one of the most amazing things about craft beer is that, you know, always we've been influenced and inspired by the brewers and brewing traditions that have come before us. Uh, the Belgians have been producing incredible beer for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but they've been brewing beer to serve with their food. And so this idea of like cuisine a la bière or beer and food pairing comes to us, I think most of all from the Belgians. So we, we've been really inspired by that for decades now. And uh, we've been showcasing that beer does go so great with so many foods. But one of the things about beer that makes it so perfect with food is that compared to wine, it's lower ABV. So low ABV means less alcohol, means less intensity on the palate. Beer kind of tends to play nicely with lots of different foods where wine can sometimes overshadow food just because it's just too intense. Uh, the other thing about beer that's incredible is that it always has carbonation, right? So it can cleanse your palate, get you ready for the next bite, but it can also dig into the richness of food, lighten it up. It can insist that the flavors of the beer be tasted in concert with the flavors of the food. Uh, incredible for that. And to your question about do certain things go with, with, with certain beers? Absolutely. You know, if you're going to serve a nice roasted turkey that's got some browning on the skins, you're going to look for beers that have a kind of toasted malt sweetness on the palate. Amber ales, beer de garde, even some lighter brown ales are going to showcase that. You know, but if you're pulling out, uh, you know, a smoked turkey, you might want to serve that with a, a roasty porter or stout that's going to showcase the same kind of flavors uh, as you'd find there. And if you're going to serve some green bean casserole or maybe some nice, uh, you know, pan-seared asparagus or something like that, some green veg, it's going to go so well with a Belgian-style Cezanne that shows a little bit of an herbal note, lots of lemony uh, flavors um, throughout uh, the, in the aroma and on the palate uh, and going to be a perfect pairing for some of those dishes. As, as a final thing, you know, with all this talk of, of pairings and all these different flavors and everything, I still want beer to become beer. You know, I don't want a waiter asking me if I want to sniff the uh, pop top yeah. tab. I mean, <laughs> so is there any danger here of beer becoming snobby, you know, like some of the wine has? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. Like I said, that has been a concern. People have brought that concern up before. And the thing about beer, though, as I mentioned with low ABV, part of it is that beer just is not wine. Even though beer brings so many complex flavors 
uh, to the consumer. And uh, even though beer can showcase so many different flavor profiles, I mean, we have beers that are hoppy, but also malty, roasty, fruity and spicy, crisp and refreshing, tart and funky. Some of them are even smoky and taste like bacon. For all of those different flavor profiles, beer is still just beer. Uh, you can still find it in 16 ounce cans. You still find it at the ballpark. And so that's the beauty of it. You know, now if you go to the ballpark, you don't have to settle for some kind of fizzy yellow alternative uh, to just get through the game. You can actually have something that you love, something that is flavorful, not distracting, but enjoyable, nuanced. And that's the best thing about beer. There's something for, for all people, for all times. You know, you have crisp, refreshing craft brewed lagers that are perfect for, you know, uh, a weekend afternoon after you mow the lawn. But then you have intense, complex Belgian style brews that are perfect uh, with food or maybe with an after dinner drink or a cigar. And so I think that, that that's the best part is that beer has been has remained like that and it's remained accessible uh, even as it has become so popular. Greg Engert is the beverage director of the Neighborhood Restaurant Group in Washington, D.C. And here's to you, Greg, and happy Thanksgiving. Cheers, Gil. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Anytime we do a segment on holiday cooking, we take a look at food safety. It is important at any time, but this year more than most. So let's circle back to Lauren Iannotti, the editor-in-chief of Rachel Ray in Season. Lauren, good to talk to you again. Hi, Gil. Well, as if COVID isn't bad enough, we normally have 48 million cases of food poisoning a year in this country. And this time with lots of cooking, lots of mistakes, poultry on the menu, lots of chances for cross-contamination, which we'll get to in a minute. But first... I think we all think we know when food goes bad because it has, you know, mold or it smells badly or something like that. That's not always true, is it? No, it's not, unfortunately. I mean, you, sometimes the sniff test will really help you, um, but sometimes it doesn't. And you got to be careful. I think you need to kind of keep a log in your head of when food comes in. Um, check those dates. I think it's a good time to think about being really, really vigilant because just as you say, we're all trying to take really good care of our health right now and, and you know, be safe and be strong and have good immunity. So let's not mess that up with, with a little um, food poisoning. Not a, not a great time for it right now. All right. So how do I lower the risk? All right. So certainly read the, read the um, sell by dates. Um, don't believe uh, that old rule about you can cut the mold off the cheese. You can cut mold off of things and it's still the mold can spores can sort of insinuate through uh, throughout a cheese block or whatever else. So you kind of, if you find it, if you're worried about it, chuck it, when in doubt, throw it out is the rule that we like to um, hold on to. It's, it's a bummer to waste food, but it's better than getting yourself sick. So then check for damage before you buy, make sure everything feels like you don't want a dented can. You don't want any, you know, any, if it seems to be leaking at the seams, if the jam you bought doesn't go when you open it, um, all of those things that you're, you're supposed to expect. If anything looks off, don't buy it. Um, if you get it home and it looks off, don't, op- don't uh, consume it. Other tips are like, you know, make sure you put your meat. We always say put um, the first the first stuff that goes to the into the refrigerator should be the first stuff that comes out of the refrigerator. So as you put more stuff in, pull that first thing that was in out and put other things behind it. So you kind of have a an inventory um, by date and the, and the the stuff you need to consume the most should be in the front. Put your meats at the bottom. They shouldn't drip on anything so they, they can go in that drawer at the bottom and um, grab those bags. I'm anti-plastic bag so, so enthusiastically, but I do want to grab that bag when I'm getting some chicken that looks like the packaging may leak a little and you don't want the blood from that chicken to leak on anything else that is that will contaminate potentially. You know, meat is a big one. And obviously with the turkey, 
a good thermometer. You want to really, really, um, I, this is a place where, I mean, it doesn't, and that doesn't have to be, it's an investment of like $14. It doesn't have to be a huge investment, but it's worth it. And especially if you're going to be doing turkey Thanksgiving and maybe a roast at you know, the holidays, and then maybe you're going to have a roast chicken and you're going to use it all the time. So get a good meat thermometer and make sure it reaches the recommended temperature, whatever you're cooking. Yeah. As a final thing, there's something that goes back to when you're buying everything, when you're doing errands, and we're all doing a lot of errands before something like Thanksgiving or Christmas or you know, whenever we have a lot of people coming over to the house, you should get the food home as soon as possible. And you also, you know, you don't want anything sitting on the counter for too long. So when you get it home, like prioritize, you know, packaged goods last, get the stuff in the fridge you need to get get in the fridge. Be safe, everybody, because we have enough stuff to worry about. So let's not let food contamination or any kind of food poisoning come into our worlds. We can do this. We can be happy and be safe and have a great holiday. And we've got all the tips to do it at rachelraymag.com and in Rachel Ray in Season magazine. Perfect place to leave it. Lauren Iannotti is the editor-in-chief of Rachel Ray in Season. Lauren, thank you so much. And again, happy Thanksgiving. Same to you, Gil. Thanks. This has been the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network, produced by Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free, starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.